I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Alloy Sieben, a PhD candidate writing about the lost object of internet searches. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Now also available on iBook and Kindle. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. So I got into psychoanalysis originally uh, when I started my uh, my graduate school work at Simon Fraser University uh, in Burnaby in Canada. Um, and my supervisor is uh, Clint Burnham. And uh, he introduced me to the Lacan Salon, which is kind of Vancouver's uh, uh, big, well, not like big, but uh, psychoanalysis group. Um, big for psychoanalysis. Big, yeah, yeah. Big for psychoanalysis. <laughs> and it's actually been kind of interesting how the amount of people there have kind of shifted over the years. I've been going, I guess, for for five years now and sometimes it's just like two or three people and sometimes it's about like 20, 20 people. So the, the amount of people going has, has really shifted over time. Um, and I don't, I don't know, I just, I, I liked the kind of the experience of uh, those salons compared to the graduate school courses that I was taking, um, mostly because in the graduate school courses that I was taking, uh, it was always about this like presentation of, of confidence and in your ideas and, um, I think it was just not that my graduate school experience was competitive, but it was a little bit competitive, just in people trying to get uh, ideas across. And when I went to Lacan Salon, there's just this attitude kind of shifted of just like mutual struggle uh, where even like very kind of accomplished uh, academics would often struggle with the material or express kind of a little bit of kind of, I don't know, vulnerability that uh, I didn't really get in, in the graduate school seminars. So I don't know, that really kind of attracted me. Um, and I, yeah, I've still been uh, going, we've gone through a bunch of the different seminars. Um, so yeah, that was kind of my introduction into psychoanalysis. And it's still kind of my, uh, it's still kind of what I like about going to the Lacan Salon, just, uh, and any kind of like psychoanalytic group that uh, the material is difficult. I mean, there are kind of not really breakthroughs, but we do kind of uh, generate insight out of the material, but it's not there's nobody that I've really come across in any of these kind of psychoanalytic meetings who's like completely confident in their interpretation of Lacan. It's a very kind of collaborative effort. So I kind of appreciated that. 
Yeah. And he changes over time. And so does Freud. And I think that's, I think that's a real thing that gets lost in academia is like this need to like, like people try to master the material, but like, it's not really about that. At least in, in my perception, like reading Lacan is just really generative and it does get confusing. And sometimes he's just going on tangents and like, winding but he always kind of comes back around and then you have these like great moments of insight but it's not he doesn't seem to be presenting it in a way where he wants people to be memorizing it like it's some sort of like dogma or like you know big truth it's more like to to me anyway it seems like it it also kind of reminds me of the feeling of being in psychoanalysis where it's like sometimes you're like oh yeah that's it and then you like kind of lose it and you're like wait what did I just realize and then it kind of gets all like turned around and then you come back to that same kind of truth again later it like kind of create recreates that experience I feel like when you read Lacan or at least when I do yeah yeah and yeah I, I, yeah, I really like that um and I also just so like my research what I'm writing my dissertation on is the it's basically just uh, talking about psychoanalysis and the internet, uh, specifically looking at like the function of internet search um, and also looking at that uh, through a number of different kind of cultural objects some movies and, and I'm also kind of shifting into kind of auto fiction a little bit, looking at auto fiction. So I've also found like psychoanalysis to also be like a really kind of great tool for, uh, for, for looking at, looking at the internet um, and understanding it in a kind of, uh, interesting ways um, and that's also kind of the work that my my supervisor does and uh, he published a really great book on on psychoanalysis on the internet too nice is that how you were introduced to that kind of idea or how did you get into that yeah that's a that's a good question um yeah i just i've always i've always kind of had like uh uh, a strong relationship, I guess, with the internet. Uh, like even going back to like uh, even my, like my undergrad, um, I was like not to get too personal, but I was kind of doing most of my socializing. Uh, even when I kind of moved into like dorms and stuff like that, I was doing kind of most of my socializing on the internet and kind of doing that kind of I don't know identity building through the internet more than through like my. Uh, the peers that even I was like sharing room or dorms with and stuff like that. Um, I was just kind of exploring my identity more through the internet. So um, I've always, yeah, I guess it's kind of just like a personal exploration of, of why, I don't know why people kind of turn to the, turn to the internet um, rather than kind of uh, real life interactions uh, sometimes for, for kind of generating a sense of identity. Yeah. Yeah, I recently wrote a small essay, a short essay about that, but I think it's really important. I think, you know, so many times, at least, I mean, most psychoanalysts, fortunately, there's a great younger generation coming in, but traditionally, they're all kind of older. <laughs> and most of the talks I've heard about it, like at conferences and stuff, is really like talking about the negatives of technology and like the negatives of the internet and this kind of social interaction. But at this point, like anyone who's like under 30, say, it's like totally a part of normal day-to-day -day life. There is no like there is no difference between like life and like life outside the internet or life inside the internet. It's all, it's all part of life now, you know, yeah. and yeah. there's not really been any good discussions about that. And I feel like it is a place where people can really explore identity or like 
especially like when people are like anonymous or I talked to this storyteller in uh, Hungary recently where she's really into role-playing games and she talked about how people can like try on different personas and personalities and identities like anonymously and then they're able to like explore different facets of themselves through these kind of like online personas that they have on the internet and how like healthy that can be and generative especially like when you're an adolescent and you're kind of exploring different ways of being in the world you can do it all there without having so many like repercussions in your day-to-day life that you might have if you were trying to explore different facets of identity, you know, with other people in, in your room or in your school or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, so like one, I guess, let me see. Um, I think the, the kind of the internet usage, uh, like what you were saying about them kind of being the IRL, like the in real life and internet kind of being like woven with each other. Um, so using the internet, I think um, one of the things that is kind of attractive about it um, is it kind of like allegorizes uh, to a certain degree, like basic kind of human interaction. So like communication in real life, you're always, there's always kind of a little bit of a gap. You're not sure uh, if you're getting through to the other person, you're not sure. There's all these kind of like, you know, you're communicating to this person, but you're not sure if the, you're the messages that you're sending are kind of reaching them. Um, and they're the probably internet, not. <laughs> yeah, 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 probably not. Uh, the internet kind of takes that where like, you're not really sure how the, the person that you're communicating with is receiving, or even if they are even receiving at all, your kind of messages. Um, so like with the experience of like something like blogging, I think like Jody Dean talks about uh, like blogging being kind of an expression of, of the death drive because it's this communication, communicative act where you're not re- really sure if there's anyone on the other end, but you're still participating, you're still communicating, but you're not really, it's just communicating for the sake of communicating. So it, so it's this kind of loop um, that I think uh, it, um, it does have a, I don't know, something that's interesting going on there, what it says about just kind of our everyday uh, communication as well. And uh, one of the books that I'm looking at in, in my dissertation, um, it was kind of like a, a blogging book. Uh, so it's called Live Blog by Megan Boyle. And it kind of, uh, it just, it's her live blog from her Tumblr that she wrote over the uh, span of like half a year. And she was just giving kind of constant updates into her life. Um, and multiple points in the book, she kind of questions, is anyone even reading this? Because um, it's it's like very excessive um, kind of communication where she's just putting everything out there. Um, and she writes it with like the purpose of like self-improvement. So by putting all this out there, she's hoping that she'll kind of see uh, what she's doing wrong. Um, at, the, at the time, she was suffering with addiction issues, um, relationship issues, um, so this idea that like, yeah, by communicating all this, that uh, she would see something there that uh, was going wrong. Um, and like, ultimately that that practice was kind of a little bit like going back to the Dean, like was a bit of a, a death drive um, because things didn't get better for her by putting everything on the internet, things got uh, progressively worse. Um, and, but, but by the end of it, she did kind of publish a book out of it. And I, I think it was a really, and she expressly calls it a novel. So um, something at the end did kind of come out of it that was very kind of productive. Um, and, it, and it did, I guess, in just becoming a novel, it did kind of become a communicative act um, in kind of a very, in, in, in kind of a more obvious fashion. 
That's interesting. Yeah, because when you're describing it, I was thinking it almost sounds like like a self-analysis, except for, of course, if she was writing the blog and not actually putting it on the internet, but maybe more like recording herself speaking or or just writing, like Freud did his own analysis just by writing. Um, yeah. I think you can get somewhere with that, but I guess that, that weird like double-edged sword when you're like actually putting it somewhere where a lot of other people can see and then like judge you that could be really harmful, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember like in Rudinesco's biography of Lacan, she has this really like kind of, <laughs> she really criticizes autofiction for kind of replacing psychoanalysis in a, in a little bit of a way, because um, these people, I kind of, in, in her very short reading of it, she writes that they kind of given up trust in like the, the representative of the care institution that was like psychoanalysts and instead are just like trying to analyze themselves, which uh, uh, I think Rudinesco really kind of strongly believes isn't really possible for someone to, to kind of analyze themselves. But that's what Freud did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, sometimes it's really hard to find an analyst that you trust. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Is this yeah. what your, I saw your website that's auto Freud and I love it. Is that, what is this? Talk to me about it. That was that was actually uh, that was just a school project from a long time ago um, that uh, I've just kind of left up there. Um, but yeah, I think I don't know if you use the kind of the auto dream generator. Um, no, uh, I was uh, just looking all these great images with these phrases, and it's, you know, I like cut up poetry and like making collages and stuff. And it to me, it was like this amazing artwork. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I think I was just kind of exploring at that point, like just like uh, kind of the the random nature uh, of the unconscious, I guess. Um, so I was taking all these past, like the passages from the interpretation of dreams uh, are so poetic. Uh, a lot of them are just so beautiful. Like if you just take uh, little sentences from there, um, I was just kind of just like auto recombining them and kind of making new dreams. Uh, like that. Um, and I did do like a very short kind of programming coding thing where uh, there is a little thing on the website where you can click on it and I, it's called fall asleep and it does kind of auto generate a dream for you. Which, okay. Uh, I saw the fall asleep, but I didn't click it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, what does that mean? What's going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> you can just uh, redirect to like another page but now it downloads something onto your computer which probably scares people but if you click on that download thing then it is just a web page so we'll see now after we finish talking i'm gonna have to do that then yeah it it still works too like uh that kind of random i don't know dreaming uh it does kind of produce these encounters or like meaning um retroactively that is still kind of interesting Yeah, that's what I find with the cut-ups. It's like, I like to cut up either people I know's writing, but a lot of psychoanalysts writing and like different artists writing and mix them all together. And like, it's, it's amazing the kinds of things they say. And I don't know, some people think of it all different sorts of ways. Or of course, you're going to read and find meaning in it, but that's what people do. That's the whole point is like, people make make sense of things no matter what what's happening basically yeah <laughs> we're always making meaning um yeah. and they and yeah they say like things that you would have never thought of on your own like consciously so it's really fun yeah and so you designed yeah. the program yourself to do it uh, i just kind of i'm not a very big programmer so i just edited someone else's program um which uh uh 
was a little bit still kind of like, yeah, a little bit difficult, but um, it wasn't writing a program or something from the, from the ground up. That's so cool. Um, and then the other thing I saw, well, also, I saw that you wrote for Le Consolon. Yeah. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah, so uh, I was actually uh, I was actually in Wuhan when the the whole coronavirus uh, the epidemic kind of started uh, because me and my partner were going back to Wuhan for uh, Chinese New Year celebrations. Uh, she hadn't seen her family in a year and a half, so we we're pretty excited about the trip. Uh, even though details of the the virus are originally just like popping out at that time that it was being picked up in kind of Western media, um, so. So we got there, uh, we actually ended up staying there less than 24 hours before uh, we got woken up. I think on the night that we got there, we got woken up at 2 a.m. in the morning by my partner's parents who were telling us we had to get out of the city because it was, it was, it was going to be closing down by 10 a.m. and we'd wow. be trapped there for a couple months, um, which I thought they were kind of exaggerating at the time, but it did turn out to be true that uh, we could have gone and trapped there for a pretty long time. Um, so, so yeah, we did this kind of mad dash out of the city, uh, like with a rented taxi and uh, going through these like checkpoints, like the city was already shutting down at the time. So, it, and, and during that time, yeah, my phone did somehow mysteriously break. And um, I had just been uh, kind of, yeah, in that internet bubble of, of having some like knowledge of my bearings. But when my phone had broke, I don't know it's just this experience of kind of like an event of uh, of being just like the coordinates of like my uh, where I was in the world uh, completely shifted, um, and it was not just in a kind of new space, but also like a new uh, kind of temporality. It felt like as well, um, and it, it even felt like one of those apocalyptic movies that had suddenly just been been taken out of just kind of like ordinary life and just like place, just like plopped down into an apocalyptic film. So. Um, yeah, so in that, in that article, I, I kind of talk about this uh, motif that I've seen in, in film and in books of the cracked phone screen that just like, I don't know if I'm just looking for it too much or if it just keeps coming up, but um, yeah, that cracked phone screen, I, I go through a couple examples there that I've, I've seen, but uh, there's also like other kind of examples that I've seen where all these different cultural objects are doing different work with the, the cracked screen or, or presenting it in different ways that's um, I, I find interesting. That's cool. Yeah, and that works with the like looking at the internet and identity as well, because the screen and like the mirror and the mirror stage, it all like I don't know, it all fits. Yeah, yeah. Um, like uh, so, yeah, some of the some of the examples that have kind of uh, stuck out to me uh, in in a film called Clouds of Sils Maria by. Uh, uh, Oliver Asayas. Uh, there's uh, it's a movie with Kristen Stewart and Julia Binoche, and uh, at the start of the film, Kristen Stewart has uh, uh, has a phone with like a screensaver of a cracked screen. So um, there's <laughs> that's like one kind of, of way of treating it. That that kind of that the cracking of the phone um, is always kind of just like present uh, as like a danger. Um, and there's another in, in a book called uh, You by Caroline Kepnes, where a character, she cracks her screen first, and then she puts the protective case over it. Um, so, like, that, that experience, again, of, like, wanting to crack the screen and then putting the, the protective, like, screen over the crack, 
Um, I don't know. It's just another, these, these kind of layers are just like, I don't know, like physical trauma, but then also like protection. Uh, I find kind of interesting. Yeah. And totally losing your coordinates. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like, it's not, it's not just like, uh, like the spatial coordinates either. Like, uh, like, uh, like mapping our location in space. But like, I think there's like the bigger kind of like, I don't know, there's been like, uh, it's not so much a debate, but like a couple of books that I've read about uh, like the digital uh, on our phones that, uh, I don't know, uh, I think like, so like my supervisor, Clint Burnham describes it as a, as a virtual kind of big other um, or like a non big other that we kind of uh, position ourselves to uh, through like when we're using our phones for whatever. And and Matt Flissfader has a book coming out on social media and psychoanalysis where he, he kind of describes it as like a willing of the big other kind of back into existence uh, because there is kind of no uh, big other in kind of like the traditional sense of, of a kind of authority figure that's like telling us, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, that we can kind of uh, position ourselves in relationship to uh right now obviously it's kind of like the zizekian uh enjoy just do do whatever you want uh there's no kind of limit to uh to what you can do um but yeah i like plus Vader makes a really interesting argument that like uh the internet that we like look at it through our phones kind of puts that kind of limit uh back there so when we're like going through like instagram photos um we see that there's still something that we can't have because a lot of the instagram genre uh, at least the profit kind of side of it is like presenting these images, unattainable images of, of material wealth or, or just like living a, a great life. Um, and yeah, there's another article on the Lacan Salon. Those, uh, they're doing like a series where Alma Krillick kind of talks about how, how peaceful uh, like the, the virus has kind of made things because the big other of, of Instagram or whatever is not presenting these like uh, these images of just like people living these great lives anymore. It's just like images of people staying at home with their cats. Um, so there isn't that kind of desire, I guess, that kind of restless desire that these kind of platforms uh, generate, uh, which I, I also thought that article was really good. Yeah, I'll look at the other ones. I only had read yours so far. Um, but I think absolutely the internet and the phone can be, is like the big other, absolutely. Um, and that's why even like when you were first talking about this woman's blog, uh, I was thinking that's like a self-analysis where she's like talking at the big other, which is what people yeah. are doing in analysis anyway. Yeah. So, so like, I, what's the difference? But I guess that in that case, it can talk back, which yeah. <laughs> maybe if she t made it so that she couldn't have any comments <laughs> and then did it. So then she yeah, would yeah. just be talking at it just, yeah. and just like the analyst, it would not talk back. Yeah, <laughs> but I guess then it would also not be able to cut her off. But maybe that's okay. She'd have to cut herself off eventually. Yeah. I also something popped into my head. You could say the big oh. uh, big other is watching instead of big brother is watching. Big yep. big other is watching. Yeah, um, and yeah, just uh, I think I, I, someone's probably said this before, but there's something like very kind of. I, like, I, I think I kind of actually disagree with uh, Burnham and Flissfader a little bit because they do describe it as like this this big other kind of, they use like big other language to describe uh, the internet and social media. Um, and the big other, at least from my understanding of it, was kind of like a paternal, uh, has a little bit of a paternal kind of authoritative aspect to it, at least in kind of uh, Zizekian or uh, Lacanian 
um, thoughts. Um, it's like the but, monotheistic God. Yeah. But the, the thing that is really weirded me out about the internet is like the, the kind of the feminine aspect of it. Um, so the fact that like uh, Angela Nagel in her book, Kill All Normies, kind of describes women as being just better at social media than men. Um, and just, you can kind of notice just like on a lot of social media platforms, it's a lot of it's being driven by, uh, by women. Um, uh, so, uh, there is something kind of feminine about it. Uh, I don't know. I, I've, someone's probably said this before, but it's kind of like a big, uh, mother almost rather than a big other, um, just because that feminine, uh, aspect to it. And I think that like that shift from kind of a feminine or a masculine big other to a kind of a more feminine one uh, is really interesting. Um, um, and I do think like, uh, Dean makes the point that the internet is all about drive. Um, I do know like that the feminine is kind of more aligned with, with death drive, um, than the masculine kind of masculine big other, which would say no, which kind of creates desire. Um, there's something, if that other is kind of shifting to a more feminine position that, uh, it does kind of inaugurate that shift a little bit from desire, uh, to drive as well. So. Yeah, and it's like vast and ever-changing and it could be a giant void as well. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Maybe it's malleable and you can relate to it in different ways. Yeah, yeah, that's true too, yeah. Um, And that brings me to, you posted recently your uh, syllabus for a class you're doing on Me Too era poetry. Oh, yeah, yeah, fiction, fiction mostly, yeah. Fiction, talk about that. Um, yeah, so we just had our first, uh, week, uh, this week and, uh, yeah, the students seemed to, we read Cat Person, uh, which was this viral short story kind of detailing this, uh, this relationship between, um, uh, these, a man and a woman, uh, where there's this actual kind of, uh, it's, it's kind of a failed, uh, relationship and a lot of it's kind of driven, uh, by the internet. So people kind of having, they they start they start off by kind of communicating through text. Uh, they actually communicate through text for like the first two months of their kind of the relationship, and then they have an in person encounter. The in person encounter is very awkward compared to compared to their texting, um, and that's that's just basically um, because through the screen, like even how we're communicating right now, not so much like how we're communicating through uh, right now, but uh, like looking looking at someone's posts or their texts or whatever. Uh, you can kind of project uh, kind of fantasies onto that screen, um, which is a lot more difficult to do uh, in person where uh, that person's uh, kind of their actual uh, or whatever their, their substance is kind of more involved there. Um, she, the, the, the protagonist of the story, the woman, when she describes like uh, they get into like a sexual encounter and she is increasingly turned off by this this man's like uh his belly uh, is like hairy belly so it's like this protrusion of the body into this kind of like uh fantasy that they've both kind of written themselves um so so yeah so this course kind of takes off from that just talking about how kind of men and women uh how men and women are doing i guess on with the internet um how that's kind of shifting uh, the, the relationships that we kind of form, uh, across the gender kind of gap. So, um, is the me too is kind of, uh, it, the course is kind of, I guess, trying to move, uh, past me too a little bit. Um, just like the, uh, kind of getting into those gray areas between, uh, men and women that the internet kind of exacerbates, I think. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think 
absolutely that the um that the internet facilitates this kind of projection and also like showing like Judith Butler of course wrote about gender as performative I guess it was in 1990 when that gender trouble came out um and since then of course now we have the the internet being widespread and it really like is showing people how that can work I feel like in a lot of ways that maybe people like pre-90 um that didn't have the internet in their everyday lives uh weren't able to see as well some of them um but now it's like really in in our faces like you can't like it's you can't deny that that's what's happening <laughs> yeah um so how did you decide to teach that class uh, well, it mostly came out of uh, Cat Person um, that the, the story went viral. So it was read by a bunch of people that don't really usually read short stories. Um, and people didn't really read it like, uh, they didn't read it like a short story. So they read it like a Me Too kind of narrative, like a, uh, a personal kind of, uh, I don't know, like, like a sad kind of blogger telling about her sad date uh, to the internet. Um, and a lot of uh, people were kind of, yeah, they just didn't read it as a work of fiction where there is that kind of, uh, there is something going on that's kind of tricking people or there's something going on there in an, in an aesthetic object that's kind of looking back at the reader as well and kind of reading them. And uh, that kind of, there is a whole Twitter account uh, dedicated to men responding to Cat Person. So the, the male character in Cat Person is this kind of sad figure um, so there is this Twitter account just created to document all these men kind of reacting very negatively to this kind of what they thought was like a, a, a critique of, of men or something like that. So uh, there's just a lot of kind of bad reading going on um, that, uh, I don't know, kind of really interested me. Uh, what exactly was the gap between um, this kind of it was almost like an autofiction story and uh, and just kind of like the everyday kind of like blogging of, of, of self on the internet, so. What do you think about everyone being so reactive? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think, um, I think, uh, I, I think it was like that kind of like being read by something rather than just reading because on social, on the internet, we're constantly like consuming, uh, consuming opinions. Um, and, uh, and just on like Twitter, we can kind of curate those, those opinions that we're constantly consuming. Um, so we are kind of just on the internet. Uh, there's this whole kind of cr criticizing of how people don't read anymore, but we read so much uh, on the internet. But when you're reading like a novel or when you're reading a short story or something, uh, it's kind of, I think it's easier to remember that there's another person on the other end, so the author, um, that you obviously can't get into contact with them, but it is, I do kind of still think of like uh, novels and short stories or any kind of art as a, as a communicative uh, thing. Whereas a lot of the stuff that I read on the internet, it's not so much communicative, it's just uh, uh, because I, I curate it so much, it's just kind of myself, like repeated over and over again. Um, so. I think, yeah, that reaction was to kind of maybe something like that, where uh, people were kind of just used to consuming, consuming uh, themselves on the internet and something came along that, I don't know, it was hard to swallow a little bit uh, because there was kind of a little bit of uh, trickery going on there that uh, 
uh, it was and it wasn't just male readers who responded in the I, not the wrong way, but responded in kind of a weird way, but also uh, women readers. Like I found, like there was a lot of kind of trickery going on in the story where the the female the woman protagonist is is also not a great character. She's also kind of flawed. Um, she's it's not a kind of a simple kind of victim perpetrator uh, narrative, but there's some details about the the female character that are problematic, but, but women, women readers really strongly related to her story as well and kind of, uh, glossed over those kind of flaws. So, so yeah, that's what kind of interested me and kind of what sparked the course. So how to read, uh, how to read, uh, these works, a lot of them are kind of auto fiction works where, um, there is like, uh, a, something that seems like just like someone telling their, uh, their bad date, but there is a, there is something going on that's kind of tricking, tricking how we kind of consume these narratives uh, a lot in the kind of the Me Too era. Will you talk a little bit about what autofiction is for people who might not know? Yeah, so like um, uh, autofiction is uh, basically just, uh, it's a lot of kind of just like personal uh, details that uh, people use their own kind of lives as, as material, as writing material. Um, it's kind of just, uh, yeah, uh, just uh, the the writing process, kind of a loop. Um, so I, I and what I mean by that is like I know kind of these auto fictional authors who, and maybe this was kind of just very common, and it goes back a long ways. But uh, authors that would kind of go through these kind of really weird or negative experiences, or they would do these things that they wouldn't normally do, uh, so that they could write about it. Um, so. It's, it's kind of blurring the line between writing and, and the self. But there is always, I think, a really important kind of gap that uh, I, I think a good autofiction narrative kind of maintains between the writing and the life. So just a little bit of kind of misdirection or deception going on there. Um, so, so, yeah, some of the ones that I've liked are, are, are Taipei by Dao Lin, which kind of relates. I think he, he said he had like a 10,000-page Word document uh, where he was writing down all the memories of his life. So it's kind of just this memory project trying to, something that would happen to him and he would try to write it down. Um, so he took those 10,000 word pages and he condensed it down to about 200 pages and that's his his novel. So so it is kind of autofiction. You do feel like you're kind of seeing into, seeing into another person, uh, getting this really kind of strong intimacy, but it's it's completely... And what I kind of like about it is how fake it is. Like, uh, it gives you this illusion of really living with another person or really kind of understanding them. Um, and it is like a really kind of strong, effective experience. Like, uh, when I finished Boyle's live blog, it was just like, whoa, I feel like I communicated with this person or, or we connected uh, because so much of the kind of the details of her, of her personal life that she was relating, I could connect to uh, so much. And it felt like I knew this person, even though, I was just reading her her book, but there is like like taking like the Taipei from Dao Lin example. I mean, it's ten thousand pages of memory that he reduced to a two hundred page book. So there is a kind of a lot of um, and even like Megan Boyle's live blog, she edited it for five years uh, to make it into a to a novel. So obviously, it's not it's not really an immediate experience of another person, but it's still kind of a. Uh, uh, yeah, kind of an edited version, even if it does have that strong feeling of immediacy. Um, so I kind of like that tension, I guess, between feeling like you're really getting to know another person, but also there being that gap or limit. Yeah, 
I think that sounds like an amazing process and like, like really cathartic for them to do all the writing really free form and like openly and then taking the time to like curate it and edit it into like a form that they wanted to be afterwards. I yeah. think that could be like really good for a person. Yeah. Um, and actually Boyle is, uh, is, is live blogging again. So as ever since the coronavirus started, she started to, she took a long hiatus from it, but she started to, to live blog again. So, um, uh, and a lot of these kind of, a lot of these, uh, at least the autofiction narratives that I, I'm familiar with, they also, for some reason, there's also like this really strong theme of addiction. So, um, but uh, and a lot of drug usage, but this drug usage being kind of presented in this kind of neutral fashion where, uh, for example, like Dao Lin's Taipei, uh, he takes a lot of drugs, but he never really describes what these drugs are doing to them. Or, or it feels like the drugs aren't doing anything to him. He's just He's just doing all these different substances and he's still kind of writing the exact same fashion. So it's like there's little effect to, to these uh, drugs, but um, I don't know. I think like the more kind of, I think like the greater addiction is like to the internet. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Alloy Sieben a PhD candidate writing about the lost object of internet searches. For more, please visit his website, autofreud.wordpress.com and lacansalon.com. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org.
Peter Beard, Brian Purich, Burroughs and Geisen, Ian Curtis, Derek Jarman, Marie Laveau, This juxtaposition of creative, wild, beautiful, successful, impoverished. The real of living our dream. Entangle the knots. The client as her to understand her divine path. Architect. Permutation was to Warhol, be home, evils from internal and external sources is also found in the analysis of adults. In passing, I would say that the very favorable changes, a contribution to the analysis of the negative therapeutic reaction. Also, Freud the ego and the id, that we genuinely, with a warily, or both the, in your mischievous company, loyalty does not end with death, we crossed over. Thank mm-hmm. you.